0: Would you stand with me to your feet once more and we're gonna read God's word together. We'll be in John chapter six, verses one through 15 today. So I want you to hear the word of God. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, Praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we turn our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts to your word, your living and active word, sharper than any double edged sword. Pierce us. Pierce us. Uh, penetrate our hearts. Um, change our our minds where our thinking is wrong, change our hearts where our hearts are stoned to give us hearts of flesh, Um, Lord, quicken death to life spiritually among those who are here this morning through the power of your word. I pray as I speak, uh, God, you would increase, you must increase, and I must decrease. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may or may not know this, but this is the most oft-told story in the New Testament apart from the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this particular miracle appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, one of the very few stories that appears in all four. So it gets as much ink as anything else outside of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, which just immediately tells you, if you're a Bible study student, that there's something very significant about this. Um, Luke, who endeavored to, as a historian to make sure he told everything necessary for Theophilus to know about Jesus, includes this story. Matthew, writing to the Jews, includes this story. Mark, to the Gentiles, includes this story. John, interested primarily in us understanding the theological significance behind it, includes this story. Really important story, and it's got significance on various levels. It's got great theological significance, which I'll barely tiptoe in this morning. Um, But two weeks from now, when Jesus is explaining kind of the meaning behind the metaphor of who he is as the bread of life and this Passover uh, celebration, that's where we'll anchor in there. Um, And then there's a practical significance that is incredibly significant that we will anchor in today um, behind what he's doing and the timing when he's doing it as he feeds the 5,000 and engages his disciples to be a part of this miracle in such a unique way. So this is a profoundly important story that God wants us to know something. He wants to teach us something through. So with that as the backdrop, let's look and see if we can't figure out what it is God wants us to know. What's so big of a deal about this particular miracle? Jesus did hundreds of miracles. Many are recorded, John says at the end of his gospel, there are many more that weren't. But this one's recorded by all four gospel writers, why? All right, verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, um, and a large crowd is following him. Remember, this is not a normal at this time. Uh, this is about a year and a half into his three-year public ministry. His popularity is growing. His The polarizing nature of him um, as, a, as a prophet is growing. Uh, m- many are beginning to claim that he's the promised one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob for a messiah even the promise to Adam in the garden that there'll be one who comes to redeem that which has been lost others are saying no what good can come out of Nazareth that's what was just said in the previous chapter it, it can't be Jesus so so he's just this polarizing figure people don't know quite what to do with him and um, and and so there's crowd's following. everybody wants to hear what he says to discern who he is and they see the signs he's doing on the sick. In other words, he's healing the sick. And Isaiah prophesied, when the Messiah comes, he'll heal the sick. That'll be one of the um, uh, clear, uh, denotating factors that, uh, that signifies that this is the Messiah. So their ears are perked. They're, they're perked up. They're, they're wanting to hear. They're wanting to know. And Jesus goes up on the mountain, and there he sits down with his disciples. So again, he sits there, but there's massive crowds in tow. In verse 4, only John points this out. And remember, John's keenly interested in the theological significance behind this story. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Um, so so let, me, let me say this. I thought about just kind of going along with John here and just kind of really anchoring in and even having the whole message Beyond what's the theological significance behind the feeding of the five thousand? But to me, the fact that this is told all four gospels and the other three really key on something else. Today, I'm going to kind of side with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not that there, um, uh, not that there is any dichotomy between the two. They're both extremely significant. But I'm going to let I'm going to point out what John wants to point out here. And then John's going to give us about 30 more verses explaining that in two weeks. And we'll really dig deep when we get two weeks from now to Jesus' explanation on what's happening. But for now, note this. John says, hey, it's Passover. And Jesus stands up, and it says he lifts his eyes to the crowds. And he lifts his eyes to the crowds. Passover week. Remember Passover week. Remember what this is in Israel. All the way back to Exodus 12. Um, take the lamb on the 10th day, slaughter it on the 4th day. T- day, this was when they were slaves in Egypt, God gives them the lamb as a provision, as a means of salvation, where they kill the lamb, they're going to take his blood and cover the doorpost, they're going to eat the meat of the lamb to sustain them, the blood will cover them, the body will sustain them, okay, and that's the provision of God, that anyone who by grace through faith receives that provision, Anyone who participates the blood over the doorpost who hides under the blood of an innocent lamb will be passed over in judgment. It was God foreshadowing the coming of Christ who Paul tells the Corinthian church is our Passover lamb. Well, here it is. Jesus knows this, of course. It's Passover. He sees the crowds and they're hungry. And just like Moses in the desert will feed the crowds manna from heaven that God provides, Jesus is going to feed them with the multiplying of these five loads, he's gonna give them bread that physically satisfies, but then he's gonna teach for about 30 verses. That not merely did he come to bring bread that physically satisfies and sustains, but he's the bread of life. And what does it mean to be covered by his blood and satisfied by his body? Okay, and there's deep theological significance obviously right there, and that's where we're gonna camp when Jesus camps there in two weeks. But there's something else extremely important and profound going on. Let me, let me if I could. Uh, this is dangerous. I'll be careful on my time, but I want to chase one rabbit. That's a uh, like a pre-sermon rabbit trail. All right, dangerous, but I'm going in. Um, something struck me this week. Uh, sat down with just a sweet young gal, 23 years old. She had scheduled a meeting. Um, said she'd just come to Christ, and I was so excited to kind of hear her story. And, and we um, met on Thursday, and Amber and I met with this gal, her name is Samantha, and, uh, and um, she uh, she met someone in our church um, working out at, at a CrossFit gym. And the guy that met her found out some of her background, her common interest, introduced her to a girl in our body named Morgan, who kind of had a similar background and, and similar hobbies and interests. And Morgan began to build a friendship with her and bring her to church. And she had been coming to church for a couple Months And last Sunday, she just felt this overwhelming conviction and need to give her life to Christ and and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the provision of righteousness. And so she gives her life to Christ Sunday. She just receives the gift of salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's right at the communion time. Overwhelming commission comes up. Morgan takes communion, prays over Beautiful thing. She's sharing me the story. And I'm I'm listening to her. By the way, she was raised Jewish. And um, I'm listening to her story. And then uh, she kind of gets to this part, and she goes, and now I have no idea what to do next. <laughs> and it was just, it was awesome. Um, and I thought about it, and uh, I thought, you know, I'll probably say a lot of things and take a lot of things for granted. Who knows how many folks here today could be just like Samantha here, searching, wondering. God's doing something, something in their heart. They're not even sure exactly what it is. Or new believers that have no idea where to go next. And last week I said something. I said my 2019 Uh, Resolution, actually, I talked about to make the best chocolate chip cookie in the world, that's still on the table. But uh, spiritually, there was one that is, uh, I just want more intimacy with Christ. And by the way, that really is the theological, theological significance of this passage, that Jesus wants us to be able to feast on him for strength and sustenance and joy and peace, and that it'll be found nowhere else other than in him. And so let me just, just in in terms of a, 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 I didn't say this, but I was talking to her on Thursday, and it hit me that I should explain these things. How do you seek intimacy with Christ? Let me just quickly give you four things. I'm gonna put them on the screen for you. Number one, just reading his word. Um, Spending time, literally, in God's word. Like, this this this, this word is living and active. Not just an old book written by men. This is God's word, living and active. I wanna spend a lot of time this year, um, Uh, Not just checking off the box of doing my daily reading, but literally feasting on Jesus through his living and active word and letting it go to work on me. And, And I don't know about you guys, but whenever I'm really reading God's word, taking my time, meditating on it, there's a closeness, there's an intimacy with Christ. Secondly, praying, which comes right out of the reading of his word, the meditation on his word in prayer, just talking to Jesus. Sometimes I get, so, I get going so fast, sometimes I'll go most of the day without praying at all, and then I'll just take a deep breath and stop and pray, and immediately I'm just overwhelmed by this sense of spiritual peace. It's like, and I'll be going, what, what am I doing? I'm like running the rat race so fast, anxiety's building, stress, and, and, and just be still and know that I'm God. Hey, it's like God's going, over here! And just step into that presence of the Lord, and there's just peace there to be had. And thirdly, the confession of sin, I've talked about this a bunch the last two weeks, but every time, every single day, there's an opportunity to just take spiritual inventory and bring up what's there, where darkness is, and just expose it, and if you're convicted to tell someone other than God to do so, but confessing of sin, you'll feel vulnerable, you'll feel weak, you'll know his strength and your weakness, there's intimacy through confession of your sin. And then finally, when I'm missionally active. When I go out and do what is still a great joy and a great responsibility, but a great fear, I, I, want, I want to be used today to share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus, and that's kind of scary, it's the unknown, it's the great mystery, I don't know how or when or why, and it keeps me dependent. I know my limitations, I know my need. And when I'm there, actively participating in the Great Commission, there's intimacy with Christ. Now, just a quick hors d'oeuvre on our way in here, but let me, let me just say uh, to the Samanthas out there, going, what in the world do I do to grow in Christ? Spend time right here with him in his word, in prayer, confess regularly your sin, live in the light, and get on mission with Christ. Now, that's a great segue into our text because the practical significance of this text is that fourth point. Is what does it mean to get on mission with Christ? That, that there's massive implication in this text and the timing of this text on that point. So let me transition to that, and let me tell you why that is. Um, this, this moment is a critical moment. If you're reading a, uh, a, a uh, harmony of the Gospels where you see what's going on chronologically in the life of Christ, year and a half in, um, John the Baptist has just been killed. He's just been beheaded by Herod. Uh, the forerunner of Jesus just was killed for saying that Jesus is king. Jesus knows the shadow of the cross is now looming. Like, it, the next ax to fall will be on him. He knows this. The Jews... There, again, some are receiving, many are rejecting. And in chapter Matthew 13, which this this, uh, miracle takes place in Matthew 14, well in Matthew 13, immediately before this story, the Jews have uh, declared, it's actually the end of Matthew 12, they said, the work you do, Jesus, this is the Jewish leadership, you do by the power of Satan. There's a rejection by spiritual leadership of Israel, of Jesus. They said, what you're doing, you're doing it by the enemy. They have rejected him. uh, They will be the ones that turned him over to be crucified. Their hatred and resentment is growing. He's not the political messiah they were looking for. So in this moment, Jesus knows, John's been killed. My people have rejected me. The shadow of the cross is looming. The time is short. So he takes these teenage fishermen and a tax collector, and the first thing he does, he sees the crowd coming. He knows his time is short. Okay, that's the backdrop. He's gonna double time now his training of the 12. Matter of fact, one of my favorite books, it is pretty rich, Uh, it's pretty heavy, I guess is the way I should say it, but if you like rich and heavy reading, uh, A.B. Bruce, the training of the 12, takes Matthew 14 through 20, and from the moment of John's beheading, Jesus begins to double time that training of the 12 to prepare them, because here's what Jesus knows. He knows that he will die, he will raise from the dead, inspiring those men to run to the ends of the earth and to give their life. And then he'll ascend to heaven, and he knows there's an age, there's a day, there's this church age, what Paul calls the mystery, the prophets couldn't see it, between his first and his second coming, when now the ministry will be in their hands. He's still the source, but they're the hands, they're the feet, they're the ambassadors, they're the heralds. And he knows that day's coming, he's got to prepare them, and he's got to prepare you and I for that day. And so here's what happens. Lifting up his eyes, seeing the large crowd coming, Jesus says to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, look what it says in verse 6. He didn't really, it wasn't that he was really looking for Philip to give him a place nearby they could buy bread. He said this to test him. He already knew what he was going to do. Again, if you read, um, it's in Matthew 14, it's in Mark 6, it's in Luke 9. If you read the other stories and synthesize and harmonize and take all the information of this story and all three other gospel accounts, it says that something went on at about this point in the exchange that all the disciples began to clamor around this question. Where can we buy food to eat? Well, here's a nearby town. Here's a nearby town. Jesus, do you want us to send them to one of these nearby towns? Is that what you mean? And in this moment, in all three of the other gospel accounts, recorded that Jesus says this. He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, yes. send them to Capernaum. Or yes, uh, send them to Tiberias. He says this. He says, no, you feed them. And it's this is massive moment. That's why it's told in all four Gospels. This moment, a year and a half in. So far, Jesus has been doing the ministry. He called these guys, and what did he say? Follow me. That was it. Just follow me. I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. Follow me. And they've been following. They've been watching. They've been asking questions. A lot of dumb questions. A lot of the kind of questions I ask. And he never chastised. He just loves them and encourages He keeps doing this, and they're watching. And in this moment, here come the crowds. Hey, Jesus, you want us to... Uh, Go to town, or what's the plan here? There's a whole lot of them, and and not much of us. And he says, "You feed them." And in this moment, they would have gone, "What?" So, and and by the way, that—that's the Great Commission. You go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Had, had one of my neighbors came down the street this week. We had a conversation in my front yard, and a, a 17-year-old girl, she said, hey, how do we know the great commission is for us? So that's a, that's an awesome question. And I think the answer lies in the very commission itself. He said, you teach them, apostles, you teach them to obey everything I'm commanding you. What is he commanding them to do? Make disciples. So what do they got to teach these people to do? Make disciples. And when they're making disciples and teaching those they're discipling to obey everything Christ commanded them, what are they gonna teach them to do? So would there ever be a generation of Christians that's not commanded to make disciples? Say no. There wouldn't be. It's, it's right there. And she said, oh, I don't know why I missed that. It's right there. That This is not merely for them. This is for us. And there's a moment when we go, when Jesus is meant to say to you, matter of fact, this is point one of my sermon. My points today are extremely scholarly in nature. I hope you can catch up to them. You feed them, that's number one. You feed them. Okay, there's massive lost people out there. There's there's folks that don't know Jesus, don't don't know that he's the bread of life, don't know the joy there is to be found in Christ, don't know the salvation that comes in Christ alone, don't know the peace and purpose of a life full of the Holy Spirit and full of Jesus, don't know. And we look out and we say, God, save them. And he says, you feed them. He says in the Great Commission, you and I, by the way, he says at the end of every gospel, Mark, go preach the gospel to all the world. He says in Luke, uh, go and preach to all of the nations. I love that missions moment, the cross conference, and 7,500 young people that are saying, yes, we'll go. Um, the world hadn't gotten its claws too deeply into them, you know, where, they're, where they can't let go yet. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, John. As my, Jesus says, this is on pointed, pointed, uh, as my Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Wow, really? Yes, really, you feed them. I loved the baptisms last week we saw, um, Luke and Brianna and Alex and Hudson, and I loved, uh, I loved when uh, Luke was sharing his testimony. He said, yeah, it was uh, the seventh hole on Windyke East. And Bryce here asked me if I had repented of my sin and trusted in Jesus. And I was just kind of laughing. Like, um, I bet you here's how I bet you that started. I bet you Bryce was praying for his buddy Luke that he had met that seems either confused about the gospel or just devoid of the, the peace that comes from knowing Christ and and whatever their conversations have led him to believe that, man, I just praying that Luke would know Jesus. Praying that Luke would repent of his sin and trust Christ. And it's somewhere along the line, Bryson is praying, I bet you Bryce is going, God, would you please save my friend Luke? And God just gives Bryce the, you feed him. And I'm sure Bryce is like, wait, what? And they're probably playing golf, and I bet holes one through six, Bryce is over there going, gosh, I wish we could have a spiritual conversation. And, oh, Luke's a pretty good golfer. Luke's probably making birdies, pars. Bryce is, you know, making other scores. And, and the holes are going along, and I'm sure, it's, you know, I'm sure it's a lot of great shot. Wow, how did you do that? How do you work the ball? Like, that? God, great putt. Can you? And at some point, the Holy Spirit's just giving him the nudge. And, and, and I don't know. I don't know if it was a blurt out. If you know Bryce, and I love Bryce, that's one thing he's capable of doing. I don't know if it was like, man, what a shot. Hey, listen, have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus? I'm just gonna, I just got to get that off my chest. I don't know if it worked in naturally, but I love it. I love that. I know what it is to, to, to be in that moment. And I know what it is a thousand times to pass it by. I love hearing about a guy who has no ability to save Luke, but is obedient to God's pressing upon him to you feed them. And he, he, just, he just tosses the alley-oop. He just lays it up there. And God takes it. And what did Luke say? He said, you know, there was his inclination to go, yeah, 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 yeah. But, then it, but, but he, he, before he could do that, he actually had a thought. And the thought was, I don't think I've done that. And then he sat there in silence enough to where he needed to admit it, and then he said, I don't think I have. And all of a sudden, there was this thing that God was doing in his heart, and he he couldn't let go of him until he repented of his sin and trusted in Christ. And and what do you think that did to Bryce? We didn't get Bryce's testimony. He's probably going, whoa, I, I can't, God, you did it. I mean, I'm sure he's praising, rejoicing, flinging golf clubs for the right reasons. And and he's encouraged. Like I want to do that again. That's what ministry is. That's what we're meant to. That's what we're. Call, that's what we're all called to do. Isn't that incredible? That's what we're all called to do. Second <laughs> Corinthians five seventeen through twenty says, if anyone is in Christ, therefore if anyone was in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is come. And then listen. It says all this. That means all that good gospel transformation is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. Not a period. An and and gave us the ministry of reconciliation the moment you're saved you're called the moment you're saved i had a uh grandfather in the faith herp i just he, he said uh god didn't just save you to get you out of earth and into heaven he saved you to get himself out of heaven and into earth you feed him Critical moment, we're you not supposed to miss this. Any good commentator will let you know, critical moment in the ministry of Christ where they've got to know that they're to be the ministers of the gospel, that we're to be the ministers of the gospel. Point one, you feed them. Which leads to point two, watch this in the text. Watch the response. Philip goes, answers him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to even get a little. At 200 denarii, if you do a study, it's like two-thirds of, a yearly, of an annual salary. In that day. So, you know, just take two thirds of your salary, okay? For some of you, that's 700 bucks. Looking at this couple, couple of these uh, young folks. Some of you, that might be 70,000 bucks. Whatever it is, two thirds, take two thirds of your annual salary. Back then, he's going, hey, if I took two thirds of an annual salary, that would buy not even enough to give a few crumbs out to all the people. Like, like the idea that we can't do that. You feed them, point two. I can't. Philip states the obvious. Philip states what's true of the apostles and what's true of you and I. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. By the way, this is the proper response to the Great Commission. It's not I won't, by the way. That would be a disobedient response. But it's I can't. I, uh, we're called to effect in people Regeneration, sanctification, gospel transformation. And the truth about you and I is we can't. That's the goal, to see them saved and sanctified and full of Christ, that's the goal. I can't do that in anyone's life. Bryce couldn't do that in Luke's life. Morgan couldn't do that in Samantha's life. We can't. Philip goes, I can't, I can't either. Great response. By the way, if your response is, all right, bring them to me, then frankly, you're disqualified. If you think you're anyone's functional savior, that's that's gonna land at a dead end. In fact, God's gonna have to break you before he can use you. God doesn't share his glory with anybody. And men that are impressed with themselves aren't usable. It's men and women unimpressed with themselves, but overwhelmed with the goodness of God's mercy. Those are the ones he uses, and he will take you and break you until he can use you. Moses, when he took matters into his own hands, and he killed an Egyptian and kicked some dirt over him, God puts him in a desert for 40 years. When he appears to him in a burning bush and says, I'm calling you to free my people, and Moses says, who am I? God can use him. Took 40 years, but he broke him. And he'll do it in our lives, too. We're no one's functional savior, our great God is the only one that works the miracle of new life. That he calls us to be a part of it is uh, an undeserved privilege. It's an overwhelming responsibility, it's an undeserved privilege, and it starts with, I can't. And if that's your posture, get ready for God to do great things in your life. Can I, can I say this about, it? this is Romans 12.1, this is Paul, um, in view of his mercy, present yourselves as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's just you going before God and saying, God, I ain't got much. But whatever I've got, you use it for your glory. I surrender my time and my talent and my treasure and everything I've got is yours. Take take the saltines and sardines that are found within me and multiply them for your glory. That's, um, That's somebody who's about to be a part of a kingdom work. It's awesome. And if he did it with these guys, he'd do it. Anybody here. Um, the secret of great men and women in the word of God who are used mightily for his glory is not that they have been given great abilities. If You read your Bible, you'll see it's not that they're so impressive. It's that they are convinced of their inability and, so, and their deep need of the Lord's presence. And they're the ones who seek him because they're unable to do what he's given them to do. That's where you get the Ruths and the Rahabs and the Peters and the Pauls. Not great ability, great inability, great trust in the ability of God. Okay, you feed them, I can't. Look where we go here. One of his disciples, I love this part, Andrew, I love Andrew. I had five chances to name a son Andrew, never did it, but I love, I love this guy. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, you, you, the only time you see Andrew pop up, he's always bringing people to Jesus. That's what I love about him. Just a humble little guy. He said, well, there is this one little boy here. Got five loaves and two fish. And then he probably felt a little silly for bringing that up in light of the crowd. He said, but what are they for so many? Okay, let me say this. Um, 5,000 men, uh, Mark makes it clear there were 5,000 men, probably about 20,000 people. I was, going, I was trying to think what would that look like so we can get a feel of that, and uh, I googled FedEx Forum seating capacity, 18,119. So basically this is the forum at full capacity including the vendors and the volunteers. And that group, pic- picture it, you're, you're, there, you're there in the court and, and they're all hungry. And this guy's got, five, by the way, barley loaves were like, if you see, it's not a wheat loaf, not that that would matter, but it's just this little pounded down, it's like a granola bar. <laughs> five granola bars and two little sardine fish. It's like, his, it's like wrapped up in a napkin. It's like mom sent him with his lunch. All right, Andrew goes, well, we got, I don't even know if, if Andrew Minnett is a joke, if he thought for maybe a minute God would do a miracle, and rethought it, or I don't even know what it is. He goes, this guy's got five loaves of fish, but obviously, That doesn't do anything with a crowd like this. Okay, um, specifically in Matthew, you see at this point in the story, Andrew makes this statement, probably feels a little silly about it, there's an awkward silence, and then Jesus says, bring them to me. Like, hey Andrew, what'd you just say? Oh, nothing, it was stupid. No, what'd you say? I I mean, this this little kid's got his lunch, but nothing, sorry. Hey, Andrew, bring the five loaves and the two fish to me. The little babe who has virtually nothing to offer, certainly insignificant with the size of the need, bring it to me. That's what I can work with. That's what I choose to work with. This is point number three. Are you ready? wanted to remain scholarly this morning, theologically, (laughs) upstairs. Give me what you got. Point one was what? You feed them. They're out there. Point two, that's overwhelming. I can't. Point three, okay, give me what you got. Every one of us has, that's, that's the reason it's a babe. That's the reason it's a lad. That's the reason it's a boy. That's the reason he has so little, is because no matter where you are on your walk and how little you think you've been given, it's not how much you've been given. It's what you do with what you've been given. God's gonna do an incredible miracle through a child who only has a little, is that encouraging? You could be a brand new believer. In fact, oftentimes it seems like God uses brand new believers the most. Because they, 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 that, that passion is so fresh and they're not afraid to say things that don't make full sense and aren't all the way you know, cleaned up. And they just, they're just kind of real and out there and, and, and that's all that God asks of us. That we lose that's the tragedy. If you're a new believer and you just, I don't even know, I have so I don't even know what my gifts and abilities are. They seem so tiny. Give me what you got. Take what you have straight to the source, straight to the one who can do a mighty work for his own glory to bring sustenance to spiritually feed all the nations. Take it to him. Say, God, all right, here's what I got. And it's the surrender. What could you could you do anything with this? Could you do anything with the little I know and the skills that I have in my workplace to create a revival, to bring hope and healing in my friend's life who's going through the divorce or in my brother's life who's going through the addiction, like, could you, could you use me, God? Now, again, if you jump out there, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, proud of your knowledge and ability and asking people to come to you is the fount of wisdom. Everyone will hate you. They'll think, this guy's a hypocrite, he's arrogant, he's a Pharisee, and he was one of those religious types. and I don't like him, and he's judgmental to boot. That's the stereotype of a lot of Christians, it's really sad. You get somebody that's just humble, that's fascinated at what God's doing in their life, that wants to share that, and, to present, and, and constantly labors for you without you even knowing before the Lord Almighty, and is constantly trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus in your life, you gravitate towards that person. And that person's salt and light in whatever context you put them in. That's what the Christian's meant to be. So he says, give me what you got. And he takes that, which is seemingly insignificant, and he does an unbelievable miracle with it. Um, l- let me ask you this question uh, in a, maybe a, a meditative, penetrating way. What, what, are you, what are you doing right now that requires the Lord to show up? For, for there to be any success. Like, like I'm not saying, in other words, what are you doing that's beyond your own capability and ability to affect someone else's life or the kingdom of God? What do you, I, not just how are you using your skills and your training to make a living, to provide for your family, that's great, but I'm saying what are you doing that if God doesn't show up, you're just gonna look like a fool? If God doesn't show up, it can't work. So it can, you have to be, like, you're just, you're just forced to be on your knees, relying on him, seeking him. What are you doing to that end right now in your life? I reflected on that in my own life uh, this week and made a list. Don't have time to go through all, all the things on this list, but just realizing like, I, I want to be a good husband that loves Catherine in a season of fatigue. I want to raise a handful of boys to see the Lord in me and to know what it is to follow him and to love him with their whole heart. I want to disciple a group of young men. I want to see them go from far from Jesus to mature in Christ and discipling others. I want to see our church be consecrated unto the Lord. I want to see our church plant other churches that are healthy, gospel-centered churches. I want to take the tool of baseball and basketball and football and use it as an opportunity to represent Christ and share the good news of who he is to lost families and boys in our community. And so I think all of these things, I have high aspirations, not a bit of it can I do on my own. I'll fail in every one of those apart from the Lord God doing what only he can do. So the greatest thing I could be doing would be recognizing my inadequacy and inability and constantly before him saying, God, please use me to affect your purposes for your glory and these that I love. That's where ministry begins. Give me what you got. All right, look what happens here. Jesus takes the loaves And when he had given thanks, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. That's a terrifying moment for the disciples. Jesus is taking the little boy's bread and fish, they still don't know exactly what's going on, probably get an idea, and he goes, you sit them down. Now, who gets to look like a fool if he doesn't do anything here? They do, they're taking 20,000 people and organizing, and Mark and Matthew say in groups of 50s and 100s. By the way, that was like eating groups. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but a lot of hollering, a lot of organizing, a lot of, hey, get this, all the people on this side of, you know, that stone marker to that tree, like sit them down here, and I mean, there's massive, and they're organizing this much. And now, now they've sat the people down. So all the people who are hungry are going, hey, why are you sitting us down? And if you're one of the apostles, you're going, I don't know. Well, are we going to eat? I hope so. What are we going to eat? Don't ask. Don't ask. Like, they don't know anything, but, but, but here's what, Jesus gives them a command, sit them down. They've got to obey first, and then God will do the miracle. This is critical. They gotta walk in obedience. Hey, Noah, build the ark. 120 years later, I'll sit in the rain. You gotta be obedient for a long time sometimes. Um, I talked about Moses. Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him you're there to free the people, then we'll start turning staffs into serpents and vice versa. But you gotta walk in obedience first. Jesus didn't do the miracle, It didn't, didn't create a mountain load of fish, and then they went over there with the chest bow down and said, Sit down, we got something for you. No, they had to go out there and say, Sit down, we have no idea what's about to happen. It's great. They're taking steps. That, that's you, you know what that is, by the way. There's probably folks here, 15-year believers, who have never led anyone to Christ. Now, I don't want to bring you any shame, that's not the goal of this or even guilt, I hope this more inspires you. I have a working belief that if you are actively in the morning taking what you have and bringing it to the Lord and allowing him to bless it for his glory, if that was your intention every day when you're if you were actively on the Great Commission, I just believe that you would lead people to Christ. Maybe regularly, maybe somewhat regularly, maybe very occasionally, but I just have a feeling you probably won't go 15 years without leading anyone to Christ. If you're, if you're, Taking the steps of obedience that you can, if you're bringing Jesus into the conversation as the Lord opens the opportunities, if you're serving people to the point they're asking questions and you get to bring answers, if you're just loving them well, if you're living as a light and salt, I just believe that you will get to share Christ and he will do a regenerating work in someone's life. Most folks that have never led someone to Christ aren't sitting down the people. They're not opening their mouth. They're not saying anything that's life Changing if God touches it. They're just kind of living. Most people don't take that first awkward step. Jesus says, basically, bring them to me. Most of us aren't actively sitting the people down before Jesus and trusting Jesus to do the miracle. Be obedient. Point four is trust Jesus. Go out there and sling, and soup always said, sling the seed. You don't know where it's gonna find fertile soil. Sometimes it won't. Hey, these guys put their necks out there. They could've looked like fools had Christ not showed up. And yet, boy will he ever. Look what he does. He takes the loaves and he gave thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So I love it. He go, fellas. Everybody takes some and they're going, hey, there was only five loaves and two fish. How do we all have 12 have a couple handfuls? I don't know, but they take it to the crowd. They give that little bit and 20,000, you know, they just served like three people, and they come back and they go, Hey, Jesus, we, we got a problem. There's a lot of. Hey, where'd you get all that? Where'd that come from? That's for me to know. Go feed the people. All right. Go feed the people, and you got any more where that came from? I don't know. Come back here. Hey, Jesus, we... oh, perfect. And, and all of a sudden, the multiplication happened and they were folks and they, everybody got active and all of a sudden the people were participating in the miracle to the extent that 20,000 people said, we want him to be our king. Something supernatural is going on and they were surrendering their lives to Christ. That's what would happen if Christians were doing the ministry the way that Christ has prescribed it. Isn't that something? Um, uh, I've got so little time and so much to say. Let's see here. Um, I remember um, on a night uh, on a mission trip in Zambia, um, St- Steve was there with me, and may- maybe maybe a couple others that are here. Uh, but about 15 years ago, and um, I've been given the opportunity to preach at this. They call it a revival. It's always scary when they call it a revival. You know, I'd rather that kind of happen naturally. But when they call it that, you feel quite an expectation. <laughs> Something revivalistic needs to happen, or I failed. Um, so anyway, but there was uh, about 12, 1500 Zambian college students. I'm uh, supposed to come in and speak, and I just got overwhelmed. I'm, I'm young in the ministry, but I just, that night I broke down um, on the rock in the African you know, fields, starry sky. I could hear them singing in there and it was moments before I went on, and I just broke down, I started crying, and I thought, I mean, it was a Moses, I said, God, you got the wrong guy. There has to be people who know a lot more than I am, who who know how to share it, who have done it. There's thousands of people in there wanting to experience, and man, I got just barely nothing to give them, and I'm gonna fall flat on my face, and I'm scared. And I want to I I call in a reliever. And I mean the Lord put a piece in my heart that was very simple. It was this. Don't try to impress them. Tell them about my love for them in Jesus. And I just started thinking, you know, the, the most unbelievable story in the world is God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I started thinking, don't overthink this, don't try to, and I walked in there and I just shared the finished work of Christ, the experience of life in Christ, and the invitation to Christ. It was short, it was sweet, by God's grace, all these students receiving Jesus Christ. Can I tell you what, I've prayed that prayer feeling deeply insignificant, praying that God will show up. I've prayed it in locker rooms on teams I've been in, I've prayed it in hallways before I've spoken in high schools. I've prayed it before D groups and at my house with six, eight guys coming over. I've prayed it every single time I've stepped onto this stage. God, I only have a little bit. Will you take it and will you multiply it in the hearts of your people to feed them and be glorified in it? And I've grown over the years, I'm slowly growing, not more confident in my ability, I still is equally unconfident I'm as equally scared if it's up to me. I've grown confident that I can hide behind the cross and that God will show up every single time as the bread of life to feed his people. And it's an incredibly liberating thing. And you know what point five is? Keep coming back. Never at any point in the feeding of the five did they get to rely on, the, after every single little handful they handed out, what they have to do? They had to go back in hopes that Jesus would have more yet again. They never were released from reminding, remi- the reminder of their own limitation in the abundance of his provision. Like that part, that, it was a, it's gonna be a lifetime trust. We'll never graduate from needing him to show up, never. About 15 years ago, playing baseball in South Africa, going out in the mornings on a mission to share the gospel, Knowing I didn't have much, coming back at nights, hearing the stories of my friends. I had one of our new staffers, Tim Watson, ask me this week, he said, when did you begin to feel called into ministry? I sat there, I stopped, I thought about it, I said, I don't know, I don't know, it wasn't like this, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that question exactly, but I know this, when I was in South Africa playing ball, I know that something totally changed about my whole perspective. I'm praying it'll change for some of you this very morning. I know that until that point, my life was about a whole lot of other things, other things other than ministry, Okay. But that trip, going out every morning with the expectation that lives were going to change and the dependence on God to do it, going out every morning that way and coming back for seven weeks, hearing the stories of what God did, changed my life. When I came back from that trip, I wanted every day of my life to be about feeding the people, depending on God, expecting him to move, depending on God, expecting him to move. Go out there every day. It's, God, I don't have much, but use it today for your glory. I said, I, just, I would never live the same another day in my life after that trip. So however you want to call that, that's when I began to understand God had called me into ministry. Not vocational, not professional, not pastor, not getting paid for it, but that's when I knew he had called me into ministry. Can I tell you what? This day, the apostles knew he had called them into ministry. They knew how to do it. And the truth from my AIA days and from their feeding the five days, (laughs) the sixth and last point is this. There's unbelievable joy in the journey. People are so afraid to, do ministry and serve the Lord because they don't want to waste their lives. You know what the irony is? To do anything else is to waste your life. If you're out there amidst the five, humble, completely dependent on God to show up, willing to be obedient, and wait on the miracle, I promise you, it's like you're living on a constant adrenaline rush. You, you never have the thought, am I wasting my life here? Never. You're so full. It, it's, it, it's, it's so great the great commission. You're going, this is what I was born for. This is what my life's meant to be about. That's why I was told four times in the gospel, this, boys, is what I've recreated you to do. Do it. Alright, I'll close with this. I was just preparing this message this week and day before yesterday, this letter arrives. Suffice it to say, three pages, front and back, uh, it's, handwriting's rough, but I've deciphered it over time. And it's from a young man who used to play keys for us. Y'all remember the uh, young man with the really big biceps? I, m- I miss old Rodney Kenner. Um, got this letter from him, and uh, he's moved his family, is uh, in Kansas, and, and the first paragraph says, KV, I'm sitting here reflecting on God's grace and favor in my life, and I was reminded it was seven years ago this day that I was considering moving to Memphis to do downline, and we spoke on the phone. Seven years later, I'm a completely different person. And as I reflect on God's grace, the first person that comes to mind today is you. Now let me say this. Say this in no way to boast, this would be proof of God's provision and our limitations if there ever was. He goes on to tell this story about our relationship growing. Went to Florida together, we were roommates, we hung out. He became part of my group. It's tons of time and fun and uh, doing life together, doing ministry together. He tells stories, three and a half pages of this moment, and then I saw this and this, and he tells, and, he's and, and I'm, just, I'm just enjoying it. I'm reading it. I'm thinking, this is sweet. This is, uh, uh, this is meaningful. It was so nice of him to take a moment to to uh, to thank me for what was ultimately my privilege. But then he gets to the last page, and he says, um. I'm weeping as I write. And I thought, that's kind of strong. And he wrote, I'm weeping as I write, because through a series of events, the pastor of our church asked me this um, Advent season, we put on a Christmas Eve type, or three days before Christmas, they put on this uh, service with some music and some lights, and they draw people in. And uh, through a series of events, he asked me if I would share the gospel. And he said, seven years ago, I would have laughed at the idea of, of me sharing the gospel in 14 different services to thousands of people. And he said, I don't know what happened. He said, I was overwhelmed with fear, and I said, yes. I thought this is, if there's anything I've learned, it's to trust God with the little. He said, I stood up there 14 times. He said, I shared the gospel, 14 crowds, which is like my biggest fear, public speaking, and in 14 different services, God moved and touched people's lives, and we saw a multitude of folks come to Christ. Now I understood why he was weeping. He said, the pastors now asked me to lead our men's study on Wednesday mornings. This is our first Wednesday, if you'd pray for me. He says, I can't believe what God's done and what he's doing, and my goal is to just do with others what I saw you do with me. Can I say something? You know what Rodney's, you know what God's saying? Hey, Rodney, you feed him. And Rodney's going, I can't do that. And he's saying, give you what you got. And Rodney's trusted him. And there's this unbelievable joy in the journey, and God's multiplying the fruit. Now, at this point, after that part, I was crying. And you know what, you know what, you know what I'm going to do with this letter? I'm keeping this one. i got a safe box that I keep a few documents. I'm keeping this one for my whole life. And the reason I'm keeping it is not some kind of a pat on the back, the one that went well. I'm keeping this one because I, every time I see it, I want to hear the Lord Jesus say, you feed them. This is in the you feed them file. Because this is what God wants to do through your life and mine, amen? Father, thank you so much that you have chosen us to be your instruments. As limited as we are, good gracious, as sinful as we are, it's unbelievable that you would choose to redeem us, remake us, and call us according to your great purposes of redeeming the nations. Let us be faithful, let us know what it is, the joy and the journey of ministering and the co- of co-missioning with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us be filled with the intimacy that comes from obedience, from kingdom work. Let us be a people that are full on purpose for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen.